Hello, I'm Trevor Dan. This is Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. Our top analyst and commentator, Phil Rogers, is with me as usual. Hello, Phil. Hello. And we'll be talking about local government and the issues that matter to you, like congestion charging and higher taxes. We'll also meet Sam Davis, Cambridge City Council's only independent councillor, and get her take on how local politics is working or isn't. And we'll talk to our old friend John Elworthy, who's launched a very impressive new service, Keeping Local Journalism Alive. First, though, the never-ending saga of Cambridge's roads. I want to see if we can make any sense of a couple of polls which have emerged. But, uh, Phil, first off, you attended a recording of a BBC debate on this issue. Did you learn anything new? Well, it was very interesting to see everybody assembled and and hear the opinions. I can't say I learned a great deal new. I think probably the main thing was that uh, Daniel Zeichner came across as being a little bit more pro the congestion charge and bus subsidies than I'd expected. Bridget Smith, on the other hand, for the Lib Dems, very much sitting on the fence. And uh, Lucy Fraser of the Conservatives, as, as you might expect, strongly opposed. And then Naomi Bennett of the Greens, not nearly as enthusiastic as you might think, really wanting some changes to the scheme, very concerned about the uh, cost of living crisis. Where are we now on the time scale? You know, have we, I think we've finished the consultation period, haven't we? When do we expect to hear any announcements? Well, it's going to be a good long while. So the consultation finished just before Christmas, and there's been a huge response to it. Over 23,000 people have written in with their opinions one way or the other. That's all being analysed now, but that's going to take until about June before we hear the results of that. And I don't have any indication that we're going to get any early news on which way it's going. We'll just have to wait and see. And some people have pointed out that that conveniently takes it to after the local elections. So uh, we'll have to see what the position is by then. There's two things running in parallel for me here. There's on the one hand, the whole issue of do we need to do anything about Cambridge's roads? And, and if we do, what should it be? The other one is the politics of it. And you've just touched on the fact that there are new elections in May. But there does seem to me to be a bit of a sense of people talking about the issue as though it's to do with can the Tories use it as a lever to get back into power? You know, are the Labour and Liberal Democrats falling out over it? Do you sense any of that? Well, I think the Liberal Democrats have certainly, shall we say, left themselves a clear line of retreat. The position from them is very much we should listen to the consultation, we should hear what people have to say and, and take a decision after that. I mean, you would you would expect they would sort of naturally be in favour of it, but that's not really the message that we're, we're getting from them. Within Labour, certainly in Cambridge, there's opinions both ways. The sort of leadership are more or less pro, but there are certainly a, a current within the local party that's that's against it as well. I don't think it's going to make all that much difference politically in the city because really the Conservatives are a fairly distant third, fourth place in Cambridge. And even with this issue, I don't think they're going to be coming back in. But it could make a big difference in East Cambridgeshire where they have all up elections this year. People are making a lot of some polling that's been done and all polls should carry a health warning. We know that. Let's start with the YouGov poll. What, What does that purport to tell us about public opinion on this issue? Well, this is a poll done for the Cambridgeshire Sustainable Travel Alliance, which is basically the cycling campaign and a number of other organisations that are all in favour of the plans. But it has been done by YouGov, which is, you know, a reputable polling organisation. And I've had a look at the data tables and, you know, it's a fairly straightforward. What do you think about it poll? Small sample, though, isn't it? It is. It's uh, 388. So that gives a margin of error of plus or minus 5%. But actually, for the, for the population that the area covers, that's not unreasonable. As, as, as the pollsters like to say, you only need a spoonful of the soup to see how it tastes, so long as you <laughs> stir it well enough. But it, it would kind of be interesting to know where in Cambridgeshire these people live, but I don't think we have that data. They certainly weren't all in the city. And overall, it came out with a majority against, with 59% opposing and 39% in favour. But it's also notable that of those opposing, there was more strength of feeling. There were more people saying strongly oppose and only one in seven saying strongly support. The question they actually asked went into some detail of 
both the bus proposal and also the charging. And it, it, it is quite a sort of paragraph of text if you look at the sort of the data table behind the headline. So I, I think it was a sort of reasonably fair presentation of, uh, of of what the proposal is. And and some people have said that's a sort of a little bit higher number in favour than they were expecting, but uh, it's still a substantial majority against. And what other polling have we seen? Well, there have been a number of online polls and the Cambridge News Cam's Live website has uh, has done a few of these. The, the latest one is running about 90 to 10 against. But I have to say, given a choice between that sort of poll where it's, you know, you go to a website and whoever happens to want to click on the poll does so versus the YouGov poll where they're actually doing a, a more scientific sample and trying to balance for sort of age groups and, and various other factors. I think the YouGov poll is probably giving a fairer picture. It's Cam's politics. Trevor down here with Phil Rogers. And um We've heard about the mayor's precept, not a word we normally use in conversation. What is a precept? So basically, when you get your council tax bill, so in the, in the city of Cambridge, it comes from Cambridge City Council, but the city council is only taking a, a relatively small part of the money. Various different organisations get various different chunks of the budget, and, and that's uh, the precept is basically how much money they're raising. So most of it at the moment goes to the county council. There's a good chunk for the police, uh, for the fire authority, and for the city council. But now, for the first time, we also have this new combined authority precept, which is only £12 at band D out of 2000 and something. So a very small slice at the moment, but possibly the thin end of the wedge. And Mayor Nick Johnson is saying that he needs this money to help support the bus services in advance, presumably, of this proposed congestion charge, were that to go forward. Yes, that's right. So back last year, we saw a number of bus services suddenly being withdrawn and the combined authorities stepped in and basically subsidised them to, to keep them going again. And there's going to be more of this as, as the year goes on. We, we have another time in April where there's further changes likely to happen. And we're going to get some council tax rises on top of all that, aren't we? Yes, that's right. Overall, it's looking like about five and a half percent this year, you know, which is still quite a lot less than the rate of inflation. So uh, it's it maybe not as high as it could be, but it's it's still another five and a half percent out of people's household budgets, which are under a lot of pressure at the moment. What did you make of that row in the county council about people from the east and north of Cambridgeshire taking a view on which bus services in South Cams should be uh, supported? Well, there's been quite a bit of discussion about this. There's a number of subsidies going to a number of different bus services. And for some of those services, the subsidy per passenger is actually really pretty high. And there's a bit of debate about what the actual numbers are and whether you should count concessionary fares and what difference the pandemic's made and so forth. But even taking all of that into account, there are some services where the subsidy is sort of 20, 30, 40 pounds per return journey. And that's a lot of money to subsidise a bus service by. And and the Conservatives have basically been saying, well, we should slice off the ones that are seem to be relatively poor value for money and, and concentrate the subsidies on on the ones that actually have more passengers. But it just so happened that many of these ones they were proposing to cut were not in in Conservative-run areas. And uh, that may just be the way the numbers work, but um, certainly people have been pointing that out and saying, well, you don't want to support uh, bus cuts in your areas. All right. Thank you, Phil. We'll talk to Sam Davis after Tom Petty, who won't back down. Tom Petty on Cam's politics. He's not backing down, and neither are we. It's uh, Trevor Down with you until one o'clock, as we are on the first Sunday of every month. And our big guest, our special guest this week, is Cambridge's only independent councillor. It is Sam in Cam, Sam Davis. Hello, Sam. Hello, Trevor. Now, how much can you achieve for the people of Queen Edith, who you represent, as an independent and not one of the party political power blocks? So I tend to think about this in terms of having three kind of spheres in which one might try and achieve some influence. So the first is casework for individual households in my ward. And I 
can see no reason why an independent would be any less effective in that role, because what it is, is advocating the needs of that particular individual or household, helping them navigate through some fairly Byzantine local government systems, pointing them in the right direction, sometimes helping them find the right language, which will unlock doors and being persistent and that's something that an independent can absolutely do very effectively and very rewardingly. You know, that's... Forgive, for, forgive me butting in, but does that mean that the officials on the council, the officers, pay as much attention to you as they might do from somebody from one of the bigger parties? All of the discussions I've ever had indicate that officers will not be influenced by party politics. That is what I'm told. Certainly, I don't detect any party political preferences at that level. I am very lucky to work with some really responsive officers. The housing officers for Queen Edith are fabulous. I have a good relationship with planning compliance officers, you know, across the board, really. So I don't feel at any disadvantage there, and I don't feel any sort of party political leanings there nor should there be so on that level I'm I'm quite happy with how it works I remember talking to Heidi Allen uh, when she was an ex-MP and asking her about the extent to which in in the commons she'd had any relationship at all with people who were in other parties and she said that actually it was rather more convivial than she'd expected um, yeah. So at the city council, do you, you know, do you have people you would genuinely call friends uh, in, in other parties? Yes, I do. And I think, you know, I'm in an interesting position, aren't I? I'm no threat to anybody. I'm just me. So they have no reason to be anything other than cooperative. And of course, my background was as a community doer and activist. And I established a lot of relationships with politicians through that period when I was not, quotes, political, which I, I think have provided a really solid background. And national politics and the way it's played out and the, the sort of performative elements of it can easily give the impression that things have to be hostile and tribal. They don't. It's a choice. We're coming up to the budget setting meeting a full council at the end of February, that does tend to get quite heated and hostile along party lines. And I have to say, I find that a total turn off. You know, it's not consistent with what I think I'm there to achieve. But hey, that's why I'm not a member of a party. OK, so just because you brought up the subject of national politics, I was wondering from your perspective, how much you think that the national political story plays out in local politics, the politics of a city like Cambridge? Well, I think Cambridge has a politically aware and sensitised population on the whole. But I think there's a big gap between that and a widespread understanding of local government, local government responsibilities. And as I said, this... You, this... Can't, you can't blame anybody, can you? Because no. it's so complex. No, and I... You know, many of the emails I get are about issues which are county council responsibilities and the county councillor for Queen Edith's division, Alex Beckett, who's a Liberal Democrat, receives, I'm sure, what he regards as a depressing number of emails from me simply forwarding on residents' comments and requests because they're mostly highways issues and they sit with the, the county council. So, no, I don't blame anyone for not understanding how it works or where they're supposed to go with their issues. But I think that blind spot about what local government can deliver, should deliver, then means that maybe national politics does have the, the sort of dominant influence on how people think about it. I think also, again, why am I not a party politician? Because at a local level in Cambridge, which is a Liberal Democrat Labour marginal, actually, what is the difference between them? 
Well, you posed the question. What's the answer? I not much is probably. The answer, I think isn't it? I think so, and and that's I guess why I find things like the budget debate so frustrating because my expectation is that we will spend a lot of time going backwards and forwards about really quite trivial sums of money in the overall scheme of things where the big issue on which we all agree is that we have been shafted for a you know 12 year stretch and if we can pull together a little bit more on helping people understand that and helping develop constructive responses to that, that would seem to me to be a much better use of everybody's time. The point you're making is that the government hasn't been chipping in in the way that it should have done. Correct. And you would blame the Conservative Party for that, I would guess. Absolutely. Because you, you just said 12 years. So it's that's the period of austerity, as well. Yeah, like to call I think it. if you if you look at the contraction of finance available to local government over that period and simultaneously the stepping up in workload that local government has acquired as austerity has bitten at an individual level that inevitably generates more work for councils. So, you know, at the county council, you know, adult social care, children's cases, all all of that safeguarding activity has necessarily increased because people's personal circumstances have got harder and all of that's being done in a context of a Cambridge's and the wider area's growth in population but b a contraction in local government finance and I find that inexcusable. Now you famously went back to university didn't you a few years ago (laughs) yes and you made a study which even you perhaps may not have realised how relevant it was going to turn out to be. Because you were talking about urban space and the development of towns and cities. Cambridge, we are told, is getting bigger. Nobody's voting for this, by the way, but we're always told we need more houses because we've got more businesses and uh, universities are expanding and all the rest of it. Do you think that expansion is being well handled? Yes, I did go back to university to study from masters in what's called sustainable urbanism because uh, this was sort of back in 2017, 2018. I was disquieted by what I saw going on in Cambridge and I wanted to understand if it was being done better elsewhere. And I think the key piece of learning from that study is contrary to my thinking when I went into the course, which was all about you know, how you make space, actually the the determining factors are about what powers you have in terms of governance and where the money's coming from. And I have this way of describing Cambridge where I talk about a kind of democratic deficit. So you have a really toxic combination of weak local government. It's weak in terms of its funding, as we've discussed. It's structurally weak because of these different tiers that that cut across each other and it's weak because it doesn't have the right powers facing that across the table is a very strong very well motivated and incentivized and funded pro growth lobby and then you have this somewhat detached populace who, as you say, have never had the growth of the city put to them as an electoral issue. Growth is managed through the local plan process, which is, you know, a very detailed, technocratic set of arguments backed by thousands of pages of modelling. It's very interesting, just to interrupt you on that subject of growth, if I may, it's one of the sort of givens of a lot of political conversation, isn't it? Even... In news bulletins, you know, that the fact that the economy has grown is always perceived to be a good thing. Growth is good. It's, it's almost a kind of Wall Street 80s thing. Is growth always good? And should it be always searched for, you know, on the backs of ordinary people's lives and cost of living? My personal take on this, I think, is that growth is neutral. GDP, it's a number. You can have good growth, you can have bad growth. You know, if you think about it, 
having a very unhealthy populace who then pay for private healthcare looks like a positive tick in your GDP numbers, but it's not telling you anything good about what's going on in your society. If you're going to have growth, for me, you need two things. You need it to be adequately funded in terms of putting in not just houses and not just transport, which are the two things we only ever hear about here, but also the whole raft of community spaces to bring people together, to enable them to live healthy and positive lives. And you also need a very clear redistribution process. So where are the benefits of growth going? Who is benefiting from them? And I think we are quite lazy about interrogating that second side of it as well. So I've been in Cambridge since the late 80s. And it feels to me very much as though the city is far more unequal, not just in terms of hard measures like income, but also access to what's here. So, you know, my example would be the botanical gardens, the university's botanical gardens. Now, when I came here, there was one day a week when it was free for local residents. That got dropped. There is a charging regime now. There are no discounts for local residents. There are no discounts for people on benefits. You can either pay or you can't. And the um, cost is at a level where it would definitely be a disincentive for many Cambridge residents, I think. And there's a commercial event planned, which sounds very lovely, um, in the Botanical Gardens, I think later in February, where they're opening at night and they're putting on a lighting show and what have you, £20 a ticket. So that space has gone from being somewhere that was accessible to anybody, albeit on a limited basis, to somewhere which is completely unaffordable for many people, hence inaccessible, unknowable, and delivering no benefit to them whatsoever. We can't let you go without hearing your views on the most contentious issue of the moment, which is, um, should we have an extra tax to pay for buses? Should we have congestion charging? What can we do? Do we need to do anything about the problems on our roads? As an independent, where do you stand on this, Sam? Um, I think I'm probably in the position where more people know my views on the subject than pretty much any other politician in the city because I wrote an extended piece on my blog about that, which has probably been read for getting on by 7,000 people now. And then that got picked up by the Cambridge Independent newspaper who published it in their edition between Christmas and New Year, which prompted another round of discussion. I do not support the GCP's proposals as they have been put to us. I've been told that it is a consultation and they are listening I would like to know which bits of this puzzle are actually negotiable because for my residents, to bring it back to my ward, you know, if there is a question mark about whether the hospital cluster on the biomedical campus is inside or outside the charging zone, that would make a huge difference to the volume of traffic that we could continue to expect to see coming into our area. You know, 23,000 people have answered that consultation in good faith. What's the next step? Will there be further scope for input if the parameters of that scheme change so much as a result of the consultation that effectively it bears no resemblance to what it's been consulted on? Have they done this the right way round, do you think? Has the focus come to be on the congestion charge? and not on the improvement of publicly funded infrastructure. In London, Ken Livingston could bring in the congestion charge quite easily because there were a lot of buses and tubes. And our problem in Cambridge is that there aren't. So when this proposal comes out and it says, we'll do all this, do all this, and then finally we'll have a congestion charge to pay for it, that's the only thing that gets picked up. And that's what the demonstrations are about. People haven't understood that there's a long game. 
Some people haven't understood that there's a long game. Some people have understood that there's a long game, but are sufficiently au fait with the time frame that it would take to set franchising up and also have questions about the credibility of some of the propositions in the, the GCP's proposals that their very good understanding leads them to be sceptical. You know, this notion that we can deal with a shortage of bus drivers by paying them more would work if Cambridge were isolated, an isolated island in terms of pay structures, but it's not. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking. I think there's been a lot of bad communication. My background is in communications and I think the GCP communicates very badly. I would have preferred a lot less messaging around there is no plan B, which I think was profoundly unhelpful and has pushed a lot of people who would have been open-minded and willing to engage in a discussion into a, a much more militant take on it. I think telling people that they must be Tories if they don't support it is, again, you know, a, a pronouncement which has backfired spectacularly. And I know that those didn't come from GCP officers, but one of the problems is the confusion around who is speaking with a official position and who is expressing their own private views. And I think the, the waters have been very muddy in that regard. And clearly the opposition who who are Tories and wouldn't mind being described as that are going to work on this as hard as they can, claiming the situation that you've just described is the fault of this joint administration and they'll they'll lay all the blame at the coalition, won't they? But isn't that depressing? Because what we want is a city that works and a greater Cambridge that works. And that's, you know, we're right back to the beginning of this conversation. That's why I have no truck with party politics at a local level. I just don't think it helps. But yes, I'm so, sure your, <laughs> your prediction is correct. So you've been in your current role now for a little over a couple of years. Uh, will you stand again next time? So I got elected in May 21. So I'm not actually up again until May 24. I think, you know, for me, the point has always been to see what I can achieve and, and to bring us right back round to the beginning of the conversation you asked about influence. And we, we had quite an extended conversation about casework. I think there's also the work a councillor does to represent their ward. And Queen Edith is this strange ward where we're in the city, but we're part of the South Cam's constituency. And I think that sometimes has worked to our detriment and left us out of conversations that are going on. And I try very hard to make sure that we are right at the heart of conversations that are going on. But the third thing is strategy. And no, I have no hard power whatsoever. You know, we have a well-entrenched leading group in the shape of Labour in the City Council. And because of the size of the majority they have, they, in terms of the mechanics of local government, they absolutely have the whip hand. However, there's a whole load of stuff you can do with soft influence, with helping to inform the public discourse, give people questions that they can then put to the party politicians. And if I feel like I'm doing something useful on all of those three levels, casework, ward representation, and the, the kind of bigger narrative about the city, then I'll, I'll be very happy and I will, yes, willingly put myself to the public vote again. Just before I let you go, Sam, this document pops through my letterbox this week. It's from Anthony Brown, mm -hmm. who, as you said, is your MP. Yep. Um, and he's managed to do this entire document without using the words Boris or Liz or Rishi. Uh, but he has pulled out all his achievements within his constituency and um, broken them down into wards. And one of them, of course, is Queen Edith. Uh, have you read this? No, you know I haven't he... seen that. Do tell. OK, this is what he says. A pay rise for our NHS staff 
I am leading, he says, a major campaign alongside unions and hospital leaders to get a pay uplift for local NHS workers to reflect the high cost of living in our area. That's what Anthony Brown MP has been doing in Queen Edith's. Yes, so I do talk to Anthony every couple of months or so because, again, in a spirit of getting the best outcomes regardless of party, he is our MP. I think it's really important that there's a conversation going on there. And when I last spoke to him, which I think was last week, he did mention that he was leading, he said, that campaign because it's recognition of the fact that in terms of expensive places to live Cambridge is right up there and if we acknowledge the need for a London waiting then a Cambridge waiting might also be appropriate I don't know any more about it than that my guess is he didn't have a lot to say about Queen Edith and that was the only thing that he could put in this document and have something to say because I doubt if he spends a lot of time thinking about your ward does he well I think you know Obviously, got many voters there. Uh, no, I suspect not. I think for Anthony, obviously, you know, the bulk of his constituency is the villages, and we are an anomaly. And that's why, you know, it's so ridiculous that Queen Edith's, the ward which hosts the city's biggest employment site and most rapidly growing employment site. And the region's hospitals is not part of the city constituency. That is a very good note to end on, if I may say so. Sam, thank you for giving up so much time. Councillor Sam Davis has been talking to us on Cam's Politics. We'll see you again, um, doubtless roundabout, when there's some announcement about the buses and the congestion and all the rest of it. I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about, Trevor. Thanks very much, Sam. See you soon. Cam's Politics with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105 Radio. Well, Phil Rogers not wishing to make a political point. Sam Davis is a, a very impressive character, I think. Yes, I think Sam did a pretty remarkable job of getting elected and the size of her majority is testament to how effective her campaign was. It sounds very much like she's going to be standing again and it's not quite the same situation because there were three seats available last time. There'll only be one when she's up next year, but I think she's in with a very good chance. Now, we're going to talk about journalism in a minute with John Elworthy and, of course, we should uh, note the fact that you are now Phil Rogers of the Cambridge Independent. How did that happen? Yes, this this is quite fun. So um, I wrote a piece at the beginning of the year just for my blog about sort of prospects for uh, Cambridge politics in the coming year. And uh, the Cambridge Independent got in touch and, and said, could they run it? And, and would I like to write a monthly column? So uh, I now find myself as a Cambridge Independent columnist, um, <laughs> which is uh, which is quite fun. So I've got, I've got press deadlines and uh, uh, stuff like that. Cambridge 105 Radio. It's Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan, and for the next few minutes, I want to celebrate some good news about the news. Now, this is a time when local BBC TV is closing down, BBC local radio has gone part-time, local newspapers are disappearing, so it's getting harder to find out what's going on in local government. But one local journalist is actually doing something about it. He's our old friend John Elworthy, who we used to describe as editor of Cam's Times, but has now launched his own hyper-local news service, Cam's News .co.uk and very good it is too. John, at the age of 71, you've launched this extraordinary new business. Age is a number, Trevor. It's a number. <laughs> I went through all the possibilities about quasi-retirement and you know, gardening and hiking and doing antique fairs and all the rest of it. And none of them floated my boat. And my partner actually says, John, this is your hobby. So why not continue with it? And I was prematurely um, removed from office, it's, uh, in political speak, I suppose. I mean, I would have retired in a couple of years, probably anyway. So what they've done by um, making my posts redundant is to have given me a lovely cushion, as you can imagine. And I did present the politician, the Conservative politician, I, who won't, I won't be naming him, of course, who said on Twitter, so you can find it who it was, that I was um, you know, suddenly unemployed. And as I pointed out to him, at what stage in life does somebody become unemployed 
under a Conservative government. I said, I'm 71. How dare you call me unemployed because I've been made redundant? I mean, for goodness sake. So if people look at this website of yours, John, it is not a little local thing knocked together in your bedroom. It's a very good, polished, professional service, isn't it? <laughs> Trevor, I've been doing this job a long while. and It was launched within two days of me being invited to uh, uh, to leave my old company. And I did tell the manager director of the old company, it doesn't really matter particularly now, but I did tell him, he asked me what my ambition was. And I said, was well, it was to swallow your output in Cambridgeshire by breakfast every day with my new publication. And, you know, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being trying to be clever about it. It literally was, I wasn't ready to go. And I, I have what a lot of youngsters don't have. I know the backstories. And the problem we have with journalism in this county, and it's in this country, really, is that you put youngsters who are very talented youngsters in positions in local newspapers, but they only ever see it as a stepping stone to something else. There are one or two good people like at the Cambridge Independent who you have on your show who, who have got that you know immensity of uh, background in the Cambridge politics in particular. But across the Cambridgeshire itself in Peterborough, there are very few people who have been doing this job for a long while. Therefore, they don't have the backstory. The interesting what... thing for me, John, is that you and your peers are interested in finding things out. You, you are investigative journalists. Would you agree with me that too much so-called journalism these days is not that? It's actually recycling press releases and it's just allowing the politicians to get away with whatever they think is the story. That, that, that is exactly what it is. And those politicians, they weren't afraid to put pressure on my company and they presumably put pressure on other people's companies, you know, to toe the line because of the commercial interests that are in line. But, you know, I'll give you a, a typical example of one of the strangest things that's happened to me, you know, yesterday was that there was there was one of the local newspapers actually put a story up when you talk about press releases this was a classic one and the the, the local newspaper concerned the headline on the story which went online was please find our latest press release attached to them below <laughs> you can you can go and find that on twitter um re references a, a press release to Finland district council i'll give you a very quick example this week of there was a story about a planning issue in in ely and you know the press there was a piece the inspector had found in favour of the small hotel and developer wins appeal. The story behind it was that you needed to go into the documents. I mean, there were like thousands of words of documents. They don't frighten me. I just pull them all up, shove them all into a Word document of about 10,000 words, read through it, and then find what the story was. And the person behind all of this who won the appeal was actually a former candidate for the mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, a former UKIP candidate, a chap called Peter Dawes, who's a, a fascinating and interesting character. And the story was about him and his successful appeal against the planning department that were ill-equipped to deal with this particular man in, who knew the law. So the story there was that there was a wonderful story lurking in plain sight but the temptation of a lot of young journalists is to go for the the old press release. Let's get it out there, or somebody writes it for you know it's in in, and they just sort of slam it straight onto the line with no background and no you know colour at all. And you know that's really sad. Let me ask you about another story that I think you broke, which is the tale of the former leader of Hunts District Council, who wiped all his records, and you you said that he'd gone to live in. Thailand. Now, yes. he's still a, a county councillor, isn't he? Is he still in Thailand, as far as you know? Well, well he's he's actually written to me a couple of times and, and saying, you know, yeah, I'm entitled to go and have a holiday and spend Christmas. <laughs> and that but I spoke to the, the chairman of the county council the other day, and this particular councillor has already apologised that he will be absent from the February meeting. So, you know, he's got to come back at some point to either clarify whether he is a councillor or not. But he, he, if you look on his register of interest at, at Cambridgeshire County Council, which you know, anybody can do. There is no evidence that he either has employment and he wasn't formally employed by the MP for Andy Dunn as, as, as a special advisor. And there is no current address in Cambridgeshire for him. So whatever explanation he tries to give to me about that particular situation. Um, and what was interesting was that there was another one where a, a, a councillor defected to the Liberal Democrats and, you know, people were trying to get the story. Well, the guy came to me. I didn't go to him. He trusted me that I would do the story. And he and we actually had a conversation uh, at eight o'clock one morning as he was driving into, into Newmarket. And 
you know, I, I got the full interview with the, the, the chap who was, and why he was defecting. I'll give you another example. I mean, I had a, an, a lunch today, which uh, your programme comes out after I would have broken up, but, you know, literally... So this, you know, we're recording this uh, interview on the 1st of February. Yeah, I think it's worth, you know, you people ought to know that because for the next reason is because they will know by now when this comes out. But, you know, uh, the former leader of Fenland District Council um, has been trying to have lunch with me for ages, a chap called Alan Melton, who's if you would know from the background of Fenland politics, is quite a charismatic and interesting person. And I've only just found a window, if you like, to go and have lunch with him. We had a lovely lunch. He came over to Whittlesey and then he handed me what was, in fact, his resignation letter as the president. He's not a councillor anymore or a county councillor, but he was the leader. But he is the president of the North East Cambridgeshire Conservative Association and treasurer of that, which is Stephen Barclay's own constituency. So his party president has quit after 50 years as a as a member of the Isle of Ely Conservative Association. And um, and there's a backstory as to why he has suddenly resigned. And that will be a really interesting story, which I shall be working on over the next uh, few hours, ready for publication overnight. And he's not a friend. He's not somebody. And he asked me, actually, during lunch, he said, can I ask you something, John? He said, and I said, he said, why did you take against me in whatever period of his politics it was? And I couldn't remember. You know, and so the fact is that he wasn't my friend, isn't my friend, but is I am friendly with. And the fact is that he could trust me with an update on his career and life and what's going on. And we had a laugh and a joke and a very pleasant lunch. I think suggests that, you know, maybe holding confidences and having a balance in my journalism is evident there, especially with a conservative politician who seem to think that, you know, there is somehow some fixation with me. Well, I'm I glad to hear somebody you... other than them elected and not, I'm not fussed either I'm way. Glad to hear you say that word balance, because that's something that I was going to uh, ask you about. Um, I'm sure like most experienced professional journalists, you would like to claim to be balanced. And yet the Conservative Party in a lot of the area that you work in, does not think that you're balanced, do they? They they well, they're, go they're, on Twitter they're, all the time talking about how you're biased against them. But they can't give an example, Trevor. <laughs> it's because, you know, people don't go say, oh, the Liberal Dem Democrats or they're like, oh, that's another nice piece that John wrote about us. Nobody says that. It's the perils, I suppose, of being in opposition. And it's the perils of being challenged on your policies and your ideas. For example, the mayoralty of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, which is absolutely fundamental to all of our lives as to who the person leading that authority is. And all I've simply said in my writings is, just remember that whatever has gone wrong with Nick, look back at how this authority was governed before when the Conservative and the criticisms of the government, Conservative government of its Conservative mayor. And that to me is the balance that they sometimes don't want to, uh, the Conservatives don't want to necessarily accept, and that I'm insistent upon. But, you know, I mean, you know, Nick Johnson, if he's found to have done wrong when this finally this conduct complaint comes out you know i will be there with the headlines and i think he would expect me to be so you know, john what's going to i'm going to move you on now to a, an actual story that's rumbling along at the moment that i'm sure you can cast an interesting eye on what's going to happen to shire hall ah well the thing about shire hall it, it's the story that people forgot isn't it really I did a little bit of kicking around in, in the dirt and one or two people messaging me and said, you will never be looking, looking at this and seeing what's going on. And fundamentally, the £45 million that we're going to save over 20 years, we may eventually save it, but we haven't started saving it yet. And we're now three years in. You know, whether you agree or disagree with the move to Alconbury, and a lot of people were not in favour of it, it was a democratic decision. And so the people who are now picking up the pieces, if you like, and not going through a recriminatory stage and saying, you know, look, you know, they shouldn't have done it. What they're saying is that we didn't put enough into it when we did do it to make sure that it was a clean break. And so what they've done, they've got themselves in a very sticky old hole with a, you know, a lease back of the of the old Shire Hall that is on presumably at some point going to become a hotel, maybe, I don't know. But the thing is, it's costing money. And Cambridge City Council are not too bothered because they're claiming rates of it 
And one of the big expenses that the county council are having to find are the rates for keeping an empty building at Shire Hall. Meanwhile, you know, Alkenbury has sort of worked as a as a new hub for the for the county council. And nobody's gonna gonna want to revisit, you know, whether we should have moved or whether we can move back to Cambridge. That argument is gone. But let me give you another example of the thing that they failed to do when they moved. Um, nobody evaluated the cost of moving the IT center. So even after they said we're gonna save all this 40 odd million, somebody suddenly discovered that there was three million pounds needed to move IT. And even that's not finally sorted because that's now going to be a cloud-based technological, you know, manoeuvre and stuff. So, you know, the simplicity of what was suggested hasn't turned out to be in reality. And oddly enough, in local government, whoever is in charge, nothing is ever straightforward and easy. If it was the commercial sector, I suggest it might be a little bit more straightforward because it's their money and their shareholders' money at risk rather than ratepayers' money at risk, which is what a journalist needs to be quizzing all the time. You know, I'm not interested in what a company does with its money. I am interested in what a, a local authority does with its money, whether it's, you know, Shire Hall or, or bus subsidies. When uh, you and I started as journalists in BBC Local Radio, people went to council meetings. It was one of the things you had to do, and often it was quite boring and, and it took a long time. It's quite laborious. Your website has reports of council meetings in much greater depth than we're used to seeing now. Is that you, or do you employ yeah. people to go and do the... No, that's no, me. me. What I do is that I wait till they're all over, and then I go on YouTube, and there was one classic meeting before Christmas, which I thought there are sometimes there are debates that I think are really important for the public to know about. And two recent examples. One was the mayoralty debate last week about whether the, there should be a precept uh, of £12 a year for the mayor and whether the, you know that should be used to subsidise buses. It was a one and a half hour meeting of the combined authority. And so I spent nine hours of my life transcribing that meeting. I had 12 and a half to 14,000 words on my computer when I'd finished and I edited it back to about six. Now it's what you might call long, long, long form journalism. And then I, I did a decent intro to summarise it all if you get fed up with after that that's fine but if you wanted to see what each individual councillor said I did it and and it's had an amazing response on my side and the same was true before Christmas when there was a debate about whether we should have a, um, an immigration champion at county council and it was a really big long proper debate about the issues that Cambridgeshire faces with whether you know there was a debate are the asylum seekers illegal immigrants or economic migrants or whatever and there were lots of very passionate speeches. And I think I spent the best part of two solid days transcribing that one. And I put it all out there with an introduction to explain what it's all about. Now you could take it or leave it. And I, and you know, and, and I, it's like, you know, I'm not being paid to do this job at the moment. I may be, but not yet. But I, and I'll, if you want to talk about that, fine. But, you know, that's my business, how I run the show. But, you know, I have got a plan for it. But at the moment, I just want to, let people know because that's well, what I, you're not going to do that uh, thing that Reach do, are you? And flood your site with adverts that stop us reading the copy. We had an experimental period, and I tried. We there is a thing called Google Ads where you can take some ads in and and dynamic and income, advertising. Yeah, the revenue is not great, and the intrusion into my in terms of what I wanted to achieve, which was long form, you know, proper journalism, and I just scrapped it all. And uh, we are going to become a community interest company. We're going to be here for the long term. It's going to be a transparent, open company. I'm a member, as of last week, of, again, a member of the British Society of Editors. I'm seeking accreditation from Ipso. I will keep the people quiet who think there's no redress against anything I write because, you know, nobody's complained about anything yet apart from on Twitter. Well, I don't think, you know, a Twitter complaint is one that merits justification for me to spend time dealing with it. But, you know, if anybody writes into me, I will deal with that and I will, I will, I will send it to somebody else to impartially decide it. And a community impact you know, interest company will give us a fundamental underpinning of what I think is a different form of journalism and one that you know people are going to have to pay for in one form or another. Either There are different methods of, of, of financing the operation. But at the moment, my redundancy check is very sweet and I'm very happy to do it. Well, that's very good to hear. But as you say, if there's going to be a future in this hyperlocal journalism, not run by big international companies who are the people who buy these properties and then close them down. It's got to be run with some local money, actually, isn't it? Yeah. And I think there are enough people in Cambridge willing to pay, spend a couple of pounds a month to keep an independent voice 
if they agree with its underlying principles. So that's another reason for me to be, you know, politically balanced and 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 to sustain something which is fundamental, I think, to a democratic process. We're just a tiny little cog in this huge big wheel. And I think I those are achievable and are being achieved by the range of people who are coming to me. And as was proven today, it's not any member of any particular political party. It's people who trust my understanding of what the issues are and will write responsibly and in depth often about what those are. So another long night ahead of me, Trevor. It sounds like it. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on Cam's Politics. We always love having you. We'll doubtless have you on at the beginning of May to talk about the local elections. Looking forward to those. (laughs) (laughs) As we all are. Thank you, John Elworthy. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bill Rogers, it is a good piece of work, isn't it, John Elworthy's site? Yes. I mean, he's put it together very quickly and, you know, clearly it's a labour of love. I I do wonder, as as he was saying, whether he's going to actually uh, make a living out of it in in the long term. It's it's very tricky to uh, to monetize this this sort of thing. He did have ads for a while, but he as he said, he's taken those off because they were just a bit too intrusive. Maybe he'll manage to get contributions to help keep it running. We'll we'll, we'll have to see. But he's kind of one of these guys who's who's always going to be doing news, come what may. So uh, good luck to him. I think. I think good luck to him and. Uh... I love the way he handles his little spats, normally with uh, the Conservatives of Fenland and other areas. He's he's very good at, at not getting riled. You know, you don't get any of that kind of Piers Morgan thing. He comes over, frankly, as a bit of an old sweetheart. Yes. I mean, I think you develop a bit of a thick skin in journalism, probably. And I mean, he was talking about the, the balance, but he's he's certainly no fan of the Conservatives, really. In, indeed, he did actually stand for Parliament for the SDP in North Norfolk way back in 1983. So uh, uh, he does there have a little bit are. of electoral history. Well, there, there's a fact we didn't have at the beginning of the show. Good work, Phil. Now, what's coming up in the next few months in our area? You mentioned there's an all-up election in East Cams, what what else is happening in May? So in May, we've got uh, a variety of different elections. We've, we've got the East Cams all-ups. Here in the city, we've got one third of the seats up, and there's possibly some chances for the Lib Dems to take back a little bit of territory, but really Labour are looking very solid in the city at the moment. We don't have anything happening in South Cams or the county. They have all-up elections, county be 2025, South Cams 2026, so a, a while to wait there. And then a little further afield in the north of the county, Fenland have all up elections, but uh, you'd imagine the Conservatives will hold on. And uh, in Peterborough, they have they have one third of the council up and uh, that'll be quite interesting, too. Well, whatever goes on, you'll hear about it here and almost certainly read about it in Phil's new column in The Independent. Uh, Thanks for joining us, as always, Phil. Very enlightening. And we'll see you on March the 5th. I'll look forward to that. Thanks very much indeed. We'll leave you with Kirsty McCall's days. Thank you for the days. Those endless days, those sacred days you gave.